for the reading of God's Word tonight, Genesis 19, 15 through 19. Here we find the story of Lot living in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're going to get escorted out of the city by the angels. Let's uh, pick up in verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, uh, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto him, O not so, my Lord, behold now... Thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast, notice the phrase here, magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life, and I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. The title of the message tonight is an interesting, head-scratching type title. I think it will make sense to you here in just a moment. But the title of the sermon is this, When God's Mercy Hurts. When God's mercy hurts, let's pray. Lord, tonight help us as we understand this truth. And Lord, help us to be cognitive and aware of when these situations arise in our life. And help us to even, Lord, be thankful for when you're willing to extend uh, mercy in a way that maybe hurts us, uh, Lord, but ultimately in the long term is best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, what is mercy? Those of you going to church for a while, you know the answer, don't you? Mercy is the removal of painful consequences from someone's life. You've done something and you deserve some sort of painful consequence for a poor choice you've made. Mercy is when uh, someone comes along and removes that consequence. Another way of saying it would be when someone lets you off the hook from a punishment that you genuinely deserve. So, in most cases, when mercy is extended to you, it is a sign, uh, rather, it brings about a sigh of relief. You, you just kind of wipe the sweat off your brow and say, wow, I escaped a close one there. Uh, let me give you an example. You've done something boneheaded and you deserve to lose your job. And the boss sends you home and says, Meet me in my office tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. I'm going to take a night and sleep on it. And he goes home and sleeps on it, and you don't sleep. And you show up with bloodshot eyes, and you walk into his office at 9 a.m., and he says, we're going to let it slide. You get to keep your job. That's mercy. That's mercy. When I was, uh, I worked at a, a um, grocery warehouse in between, uh, uh, during the summer break of my college years, called Super Value. It's a grocery uh, produce type warehouse. And I remember I was on a forklift I was not authorized to be on. And I, um, I was trying to turn it one way and I turned it the wrong way. It's one of those stand-up kind you see in Home Depot. And um, I turned the little handle and it went the wrong way and I took out part of the structure that held up the racks up above. Kind of like what you'd see in Home Depot. And other than damaging the rack, nothing fell. There was no... Damage to the, the product there, but I did take out the rack and I hopped off and I ran straight to my supervisor, Ron, and I said, Ron, this is what I was doing and this is what happened. 
and he got really quiet. And I got, um, I could feel my blood pressure go up and I could feel my heart begin to race. And I thought that was the end for me. Uh, Ron really liked me because I worked hard and did a lot of overtime for him. And so he chose to, to look the other way. A couple of weeks later, we had a guy who uh, skirted the rules a lot. He was trying to back a double pallet jack into a pallet of oranges. And when he pulled out, he took out a rack and thousands, of, tens of thousands, tons of pounds of oranges were in the racks. And they slid down and were aiming at his head and did not fall. And he pulled out and didn't tell anybody. Well, the security camera Caught him and he was fired because he wasn't willing to come tell on himself. He, they showed mercy to me. They didn't show mercy to this guy. And so uh, what is mercy? It's when you are told, I'm letting you off the hook. This is the consequence you deserve. Uh, but I'm going to let, let it go this time. With a child, it's when a child is or a young person is... Um, uh, deserving of punishment from their parents or maybe a school, and the parent says, I'm going to let it slide this time. That's mercy. In these situations, mercy brings a sense of relief. But sometimes when mercy it is, is given, it can actually hurt. Mercy given can actually hurt. And the, uh, a, a very simple example that I can think of is think of a child who's reaching up to touch, touch a hot stove. Or maybe a child that's sticking a fork in an outlet. And the parent comes along and in haste smacks that child's hand and turns that child's hand red and yells at the child, Don't touch the stove! Don't put the fork in the electric outlet! Did mercy in that case hurt? Yes. But it hurt a lot less than would have hurt. Um, how many of you here, you wanted to touch the hot stove and your parents told you, no, it's back to right away. Finally, they just said, go ahead and touch it. <laughs> go ahead and touch it and you'll learn real quick not to do that again. Um, and I think God smacks our hand away enough time when we try to do sin. Eventually, he just says, all right, go ahead. And he lets us suffer the consequence of sin. Um, Proverbs 3, verse 12 says this, and this verse is uh, quoted in Hebrews, but it says, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Why does God correct us, punish us? Because he loves us. Um, does this correction generally feel good? No, it doesn't. Uh, but does it hurt less than if he just let sin run its natural course? Yes, he does. Yes, it does. I think of uh, someone who is caught up in lust and they get caught before before they that takes its natural uh, uh, it takes its natural uh, path and that maybe that that man or that woman uh, would end up in an affair and it's better to be caught in the early stages of lust than be caught in an affair. God maybe would have exposed that lust so that person gets caught and God has a way of correcting us where it will hurt us. Uh, but uh, but it is less painful than otherwise would have been. Is his correction less painful than the consequences of our bad choices? His punishment is always less painful than the consequences of our bad choices. Now, let me just say here, Lot was saved. In fact, the New Testament calls him righteous Lot, but Lot was in love with the sinful city he lived in. God forced, forced Lot to leave so that he would not be destroyed by the fire or brimstone that was coming. In God's mercy, he forced Lot to do something he did not want to do, but he forced him to do it for his own good. 
And I'll just tell you tonight, God's ways are always best. His ways are always best. And He will sometimes allow us uh, hurt, allow us to be hurt in order to get our attention to prevent us or to protect us from a greater hurt. Uh, a lot of times when Christians get hurt, they'll look up at God and say, why did you let me get hurt? Why did you hurt me? And God is saying, I smacked your hand away before you touched the stove of sin and really hurt yourself. Don't shake your fist at me. We're going to look at five observations. We're going to tell the story of Lot tonight, get into some details and maybe shine some lights on some perspectives that uh, just surface telling the story wouldn't always do. Help you to see tonight uh, this idea of when God's mercy hurts. Let's jump in tonight. You can fill out that outline if you have it there. Number one, notice the motives of Lot's family. The motives of Lot's family. If you can turn me down on the monitors up here, here, I appreciate that. And so you can really begin to look at the story of Lot and his family and see that their motives were not always the purest on why they did what they did. Now, something dawned on me in preparation for this sermon is that I don't think Lot moved to Sodom for the purpose of, of burying his family in a sinful culture. And I don't think Lot thought that he was living in sin while in this sinful culture. You, you know the illustration of the, of the frog in the pot where the heat slowly turned up? You know, you know the illustration? And the, and the frog doesn't get out and ends up dying? I think that's sort of what happened to Lot here. I think Lot's family really wanted to move there, and Lot saw some pluses for moving there. And I don't know that you can uh, look at every one of the reasons and say that on its own is bad. But Lot took his eyes off God, and Lot took his eyes off what God wanted for him, and, and rationalized his decisions. And before you know it, he was in a pot of boiling hot water. Let me give you three motives that Scripture clearly uh, spells out here that were uh, the, the motives of Lot's family. Letter A, notice... Fortune desired. Fortune desired. Now we find the story of Lot and Abraham. Lot being the nephew of Abraham. They're parting ways. Abraham defers a lot and let him choose uh, the direction he wants to go. And Abraham takes the other. Turn over to Genesis chapter 13 and look at verse number 9 with me. Genesis 13, 9. It says, and this is Abraham speaking, Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if uh, thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot uh, lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. You ever seen pictures of those um, uh, th- those fields, those really green fields in Ireland? And just how plush and green the, the land can be. I think that's probably what it looked like. There were no dandelions. It was perfect greeting fa- uh, uh, ground, uh, eating ground for his livestock. Verse 11, Then Lot chose him all the plains of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain. Now, I'm going to stop reading there for just a minute, and i got to tell you, there's nothing wrong so far. 
Lot has chosen the well-watered plains of Jordan. There's nothing sinful about green grass. There's nothing sinful about giving your livestock uh, a ground to eat on and making sure that your family is provided for and taken care of. That was not the mistake he made. Going to Jordan was not the mistake. It was the direction he pitched his tent after he chose that. The rest of the verse says, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. That means the door opened up to his tent where when he walked out, the very first thing he saw was the city of Sodom. And in Sodom, obviously, was all that wickedness. But also inside of Sodom was a city that was well off financially. They were uh, strong in capital. There was a lot of wealth there. And there's no question that Lot picked the region he picked because he wanted his livestock to be better fed. And he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He looked up and he saw the city of Sodom and he desired the wealth that was in that city to be in his pocket. We know with time that he would take a vacation there or sojourn there, and then he would eventually buy a home and move in there and take up residence amongst those in Sodom. So, uh, what were the motives of Lot's family? Well, first, they just wanted to be rich. Fortune desired, let her be. Fame enjoyed. Fame enjoyed. Go back to Genesis 19 and verse 1. Uh, exclusively tonight uh, will be in Genesis 13 and 19 until we get down to the three concluding thoughts there. So Genesis 13 and 19, put a marker there so you can flip back and forth quickly. Look at verse 1, it says, And there came two angels of Sodom and even. And Lot, look where, look where he is here, sat in the gate of Sodom. Sat in the gate of Sodom. Now look down at verse 9. And here we find that uh, Lot has put the angels up in his home and these wicked men are coming and they want to do evil things to the angels. And notice what the men of the city say about Lot's position in the town. It says, and they said, stand back. And they said again, this speaking of Lot, this one fellow came into sojourn and he will needs be a judge. Now, you know from other stories in the Bible, Boaz in particular, that if you sat in the gate of the city, you were part of the judicial system of that city. So Lot had had been labeled a man of morals and a, la- a man of good decision making, and they had made him a judge in the town. He enjoyed a name of prominence. I'm sure that with that title came a nice paycheck, and I'm sure that meant Mrs. Lot was able to wear nice clothes and carry fancy handbags and have all the latest and greatest of that days. I'm sure there were uh, parties that they went to and they whined and they dined with others, and I'm sure Mrs. Lot enjoyed the prominence of being a judge's wife and all of the fame that went along with that city. And who were they popular among? Well, they were popular among a bunch of people that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know the the, the reputation of the city, I don't know that that's where you quite want to be famous. What were the motives of uh, Lot's family? Well, first, it was, uh, it was um, uh, uh, let's see here, fortune desired, f- uh, be fame enjoyed, notice letter C, flesh fulfilled. Flesh fulfilled. Now, the truth is, they did not pray about moving into Sodom and Gomorrah. They just did it. And they did it because it offered every opportunity they wanted. I can hear Mrs. Lott, and a little, little bit of speculation on my part here, but I can hear Mrs. Lott as she's traveling around with Abraham, and then as they split away, I can hear the complaining. Our children are going to grow up to be weird. They don't get to have social interaction with other children. 
All they do is grow up in these tents and they're, we're just, we're just nomads going from here to there. I want to settle down in the suburbs of Sodom and I, I want to have a normal life and I want my kids to go to a normal school and I want my kids to have friends and I want, uh, my daughters to grow up and marry normal people. When they said normal, what they meant was secular people. Why is it that they moved into Sodom? It was because they wanted everything that the city life had to offer. And and Mrs. Lot and ending up to be Lot were willing to throw everything out the window about their faith in order to give their children a quote-unquote normal life. They wanted to fulfill the flesh. And that meant way, way more than anything else. Look at Genesis 19.24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire uh, from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the plains uh, and all the inhabitants of the city uh, and, and that which grew upon the ground. But His wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? Because her flesh had fallen in love with that city. Her flesh had fallen in love with her home. And 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 and, and, and the social life she enjoyed, and the friends that she had. What was the motive of moving into Sodom to begin with? Well, it was a, a whole lot of wealth, a whole lot of popularity, and boy, it sure made their flesh feel good. And I know that this is something that's said regularly, but boy, it sure needs to be said here. If your flesh is impulsed and your flesh wants to do it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. There is that dwelleth within my flesh no good thing. No good thing. And so um, not everything the flesh wants to do is a sin, but much of it is. And those things that aren't a sin, when not uh, held in moderation, quickly become a sin. Number one, uh, we notice this evening the motives of Lot's family. Number two, notice the morality of the culture. The morality of the culture. Now, I want you to understand that when Lot was part of Abraham's traveling family, and there were a lot of folks, there were servants, there were um, uh, no doubt some of those servants had gotten married and had children, and so they had basically a miniature city traveling with them. We know it was big enough that Abraham was able to put together an army out of his own servants and go overthrow the people that overtook Sodom and Gomorrah. So there was quite a bit of folk there traveling, and they, they had amongst them a righteous leader in Abraham. They enjoyed a solid... Uh, uh, morality that came with that, and Lot split away from that because of strife, and then attached himself to a city that was Im- very immoral. Look at Genesis thirteen thirteen. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Before the Lord exceedingly, they were wicked. They were sinners. That was what they walked into. Look at Genesis nineteen verse twelve. Genesis nineteen verse twelve. The Bible says, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place. Why? Because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. There comes a point in time where a people have grown so far away from God, and their immorality becomes so great that God just cannot stand it any longer. And He steps in and He destroys. He destroys. Now, let me just say here that 
I don't think it's fair for Christians to try to figure out when that does and doesn't happen. I remember after Hurricane Katrina, I sat in a church and listened to a pastor. Basically, he pulled some passage out of the Old Testament. And he basically said that that was God sending his wrath because New Orleans is such a wicked city. Now, I'll say this. That's possible. It's possible. But unless God calls you on the phone and tells you he did that, you better be careful on passing judgment. Let God judge. We show God's love. Let him worry about being that judge. Um, uh, I was talking to someone uh, earlier today, I think it was, and they were talking about the tsunami that hit uh, on the other side of the world uh, a few years back. And they said, that's God's judgment falling on that place. And Haiti, uh, Haiti suffered a, a national disaster a few years back. And I heard people say, oh, that's God judging them because of the witchcraft in that, in that country. Is that possible? Totally possible. Do we know? We don't know. How about September 11th? Was that God raining down wrath on America? It's possible. But we don't know that, do we? Now, we know that God does do that because He did it to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Scriptures tell us He did that. There comes a point in time where a culture becomes so wicked that God just says, look, I I can't handle this anymore. He wipes them out. He did it in Genesis 6 to the whole world. He did it here in Genesis 19. This was the culture that he attached himself to. Now, let me just say this to the Christians here tonight, which should be all of you, and we'll move on. We are to live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. You understand that? The world out there is wicked. It is wretched. You turn the TV on and much what you find is wickedness and wretchedness. You go to the workplace and you hear the conversations and it does not please the Lord. And Christians, we are to be like a boat in the water. There's nothing wrong with the boat being in the water. The problem is when you start putting the water inside the boat. That's dangerous. And Christian, it's okay for you to be in the world, but it becomes dangerous when you start putting the world inside the Christian. And so, yes, Lot, he was part of a good morality with Abraham's crowd. They went and attached themselves to a wicked culture. And I believe Lot was probably the best among them, but that culture began to sit uh, uh, slowly enter the boat of their hearts and lives to a place where God said, you should have never come here to begin with. Number three, we notice the mandate from the angels, the mandate from the angels. So God sends a couple of angels into Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's looking to remove the righteous before he sends the condemnation or the hellfire and brimstone. I just need to quickly uh, say this here is that this is a great story about eternal security. God, in fact, the angels even say as much. God could not destroy the city with fire and brimstone, until the righteous had been removed. Could not and would not do it. God is not going to destroy this world with a fervent heat until all the Christians are gone. In fact, God's not even going to rain down His seven-year tribulation on this earth until those that are in the church who are already saved are taken out. I'll share a quick little nugget of truth I discovered this week in studying for putting a Bible study together. And I don't know if this will make it into the Bible study, so I'll throw it out here. This just When I read this, this is the Bible nerd of me, I sat in my chair and I smiled for like ten minutes. I'm like, this is so neat! I was texting my family and I think I even put it on Twitter. Enoch, okay? Enoch was was translated, right, to heaven. Do you know that Enoch's translation to heaven before the flood is a picture of the church being raptured before the tribulation? Isn't that neat? How many of you have never heard that before? 
Isn't that really neat? I really like that. So, uh, but uh, the, the rapture comes first, and God will remove. And I believe Lot was saved. I think the New Testament clearly states that he was he was just, he was righteous. No, he didn't live righteous, but his account in heaven was. And God was not going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah there. So the uh, angels come and they give him a clear mandate: you must leave. Now Lot knew it was time to go, but his wife. And his children, they had a much harder time of that. Look at 15, Genesis 19:15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hasted, hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. You need to leave. Take your wife, take your two daughters, and leave. And you know what? They didn't want to do it. I can see Lot running around town trying to close up his affairs and get his things packed and rent a U-Haul and get out of town. Uh, uh, obviously, they didn't have U-Hauls back then, but maybe rent a chariot, right? Get, get the things out of town. And Mrs. Lot was dragging her feet. She just didn't want to go. The two daughters said, but Dad, my friend's at school, and Dad this and Dad that. They didn't want to go. And the angel said, no, listen, you got to do it now. you got to do it now. You know, God's mercy does not hurt us until we first ignore his initial warning. It may be that uh, the pastor throws up a stop sign about something that's going on in your life and holds up a Bible verse and says, hey, right here it says this, and God says through His Spirit in your heart, stop. You need to stop that action. And you shrug your shoulders and go, nah, I'm good. And God says, okay, I've given you not only the Scriptures to warn you, but I've given you a specific warning. And you just keep on going. Or maybe you drag your feet in the change. Eventually, that's when God comes around and says, I gave you plenty of chances. I, I showed you my mercy without hurting you. Now I'm going to have to show you my mercy and hurt you. Lot had so hurt his Christian testimony that it was, when it was time for him to convince his family to leave, he couldn't do it. Number four, notice the mockery of Lot perceived. The mockery of Lot perceived. Look at verse 14. Genesis 19:14. Now the angels have told him you got to get out. He goes to bed, he wakes up the next morning and he's going to go to his he has two daughters that are unmarried and he has two daughters that are married. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law which married his daughters and said, "Up, get you out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city." But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. I've always had a, a, a video clip of this sort of, uh, my imagination playing in my head, where Lot comes and he bangs on the door, and he's sweating, and he's nervous, and they open the door, and he rushes in, and, and, and he goes to the fridge, gets a bottle of water, and he goes and sits on the couch, and his breathing is real shallow, and his sons-in-law sit there on the couch, and they say, Dad, what's wrong? And he says, God is going to send fire and brimstone down and destroy the city. And the two of them look at each other, and they just start laughing. And he says, guys, no, listen, I know sometimes at the table that I can crack jokes and be funny. I'm not trying to be funny right now. God is going to destroy this city, and I don't want you and my daughters to die. Get your things together and they and leave. And they're sitting on the couch, and they're laughing so hard that they just laugh Lot right out of their house. Why? Because Lot had so damaged his reputation that even his own daughters and son-in-law would not believe him. 
By the way, the fact that his son, his sons-in-laws and his daughters, these two daughters were left in the city, shows that they weren't even saved themselves. God left them there to be destroyed in the fire and brimstone. And and listen, you know the story about Abraham on his way in. You remember? He's, uh, he said, uh, "For well, what did they get down to? Ten, I believe it was? If there are ten righteous, you have a lot. You have his wife and you have their four daughters. That's six. Boy, all they got to do is see four more people be converted and the city would have been saved. And they couldn't even do that. And two of the, his daughters would, uh, didn't even convert. Why? Because they had left them so exposed to the culture and grown calloused to the immorality around them that it ended up being that they were destroyed. Let me just say a word here to the moms and dads in the room. Do not assume that because you go to church and because you hold to the Bible that your children have automatically converted to the faith. Uh, you need to make sure that that relationship is between them and God and that they have their own strong relationship with the Lord. You get on your knees and you pray for your kids and you protect your kids and you love your kids or one day you'll give them a warning from the Bible and they'll look at you as though you are just making mockery of of the situation. Number four, the mockery of Lot perceived. Number five, notice the mercy of God forced. The mercy of God forced. Go back to Genesis 19. The angels have come in town. They've been staying in Lot's house and they were told, you've got to get your things together and you've got to go. And a whole day it passes where Lot is trying to get his affairs in order and he's trying to convince his family. And the next morning they wake up and the angels say, okay, if you're not going to leave on your own, then you're going to leave my way. Look at verse 16. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him out and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hast found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life, and I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. The mercy of God forced. It came a point where the angels looked and said, this day of destruction is coming. If you're not going to leave on your own, then we're going to drag you out of the city. The angels took their angelic hands and laid them on the wrists of Lot and Mrs. Lot and their two daughters that were still at home and forced them out. Drug them out. Force it. Have you ever had God come down hard on you? And you kind of thought, what are you doing, God? And God's saying, you may not like it, but I'm showing you my mercy. I'm trying to prevent from other pain coming into your life. You know, Mrs. Lot... I believe Mrs. Lot was saved. Or she wouldn't have been taken out of the city. But Mrs. Lot was so in love with sin that she looked over her shoulder and watched as her possessions and her friends and families and connections and all the fame she enjoyed, she watched as it all went up in smoke. She'd been told not to look back, but she couldn't help herself. 
The Bible says she was turned into a pillar of salt. You know, the Bible says that if God cannot get your attention, Christian, that he will turn over your flesh to be destroyed so as to save your spirit. I don't know how many Christians I have seen in my life who just refuse to do it God's way. They're in love with sin. And God finally says, okay, I'm going to handle you like I handled Mrs. Lot. I'm going to allow you to, to, if you're not going to allow me to, to drag you away from sin and your heart's still going to be bent toward it, then you can be destroyed by the very sin that I'm trying to keep you from. When God brings His mercy down on you, and it, and it hurts. Are you willing to drop your head and say, Okay, God, I get the point. I understand what you're trying to do to me here. That hurt. That was chastening. That was a scourging. Hebrews 13.6. But I know you did it because you loved me. Let me give you three concluding thoughts and I'll wrap up the message this evening. Concluding thought number one, notice God's mercy protects us. God's mercy protects us. Let's look at some verses here in Psalm. Turn over to Psalm chapter 13, verse 5. The Bible says, but I have trusted in thy mercy. Boy, that's a level of Christianity that many of us struggle to get to. Do you trust God's mercy? Do you, do you, do you count on it? Can you fall back on it and trust it's going to catch you? My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I guess the best analogy I can think of to use to, to paint a picture in your mind you know, when you got saved, you became a sheep in the flock of, of, of the Savior. He became your good shepherd. It was through His mercy that He opened up the sheep gate and let you in. Now, if you trusted His mercy enough to become part of the flock of God, then when you stray from the flock, and the shepherd has to break your leg to get you to lie down, and quit running away from the flock. Do you understand that he's breaking your leg, not because he hates you, but because he's trying to protect you? You look at a shepherd's staff, and one end has a hook. He can reach out and put that around the neck of the little lamb or the sheep, and he can pull that, that animal into him gently. And that stubborn lamb will buck and move away, and at some point... When that lamb keeps putting itself in harm's way and getting too close to the edge and going to fall in the moving water or is being mean and belligerent to the other lambs, the, the, the shepherd turns that staff around and to the end that's straight and he gets down and at times he'll break the leg of that sheep and he'll hurt that lamb and force that lamb to lie down. Then he'll straighten that leg out and he'll tape it up. Why? Because he's trying to get the sheep's will broken through his mercy to not only protect that lamb, but all the other ones around it. 
It's God's mercy that saved you, Christian. Do you trust His mercy enough to let Him lead you and guide you and protect you? Or are you so stubborn that you want the culture out there to accept you and you want to be like Lot's family and go do it that way and be accepted and be labeled as normal by the culture and God's saying, hey, I called you to be a peculiar people and I want to protect you from the pain that they're going to endure from their lifestyle and the judgment I'm going to rain down on them If you'll trust me, not only will my mercy save you, but my mercy will protect you. God's mercy protects us. Number two, God's mercy proves us. Turn over to Psalm 31 and verse number 7. Psalm 31, 7. should just be a few pages to the right there. It says, I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. For thou hast considered my trouble, thou hast known my soul in adversities. Look over at Psalm 41 verse 4, just ten chapters over. The Bible says, I said, Lord, be merciful unto me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. I remember as a boy, I'd go to my dad and I'd say, Dad, I need 20 bucks to go on a teen activity. And he'd open up his wallet. He had a bifold wallet, black bifold wallet he kept in his back pocket. He'd pull that thing out and he'd open it up and he'd show me there'd be nothing in there. And I'd say, well, I guess I'm not going on the teen activity this time. And he looked at me and said, I guess not. We had some times there, just, there was never a $20 bill in his wallet. It just wasn't there. I don't know if it was in the bank and he just didn't want it in his wallet to give to me or what it was. But there was never, there were times there just wasn't money for us to go uh, on teen activities, there was a limit on my dad's funds. There was a limit on my dad's funds. Can I tell you, there's no limit on God's mercy. Limitless. You go to God and you say, God, I blew it. And I can look up at you and see a perfect standard. And I know that I need you to prove me. I know I need you to bring me up to the standard. Hey, let's not ask God. And by the way, a lot of grace churches do this. Let's bring the standard down to the man. And the Bible says, God says, no, let's bring the man. Let's bring the Christian up to the standard. That's what God's grace does. It grows us up to that standard. And so when we go to God and we say, God, your mercy is so real to me, it overwhelms me that you would continue to forgive me. I don't want to abuse that. No, no, no. I want to grow closer to you. And I want my faith to be proven, to be solid and true. Number three. Notice, God's mercy purges us. Turn over to Psalm 51 and verse 1. God's mercy is not something to be taken advantage of. No, God's mercy is something that ought to refine us, purify us, and make us better. We know the story of Psalm 51. We know about David's sins, his adultery, and his murder. Of Uriah, and we know that um, uh, his new wife was carrying an illegitimate child, and that Nathan had promised that child to die. And we know that David's laying on his face in the courtyard of the temple, uh, or rather of the, of the palace, begging God for that child's life and begging God to forgive him. And look at Psalm fifty-one, one. It says, "Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness." According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, excuse me, blot out my transgressions. I love David. 
I love that God just lays it all out there for David. You know, I really like Daniel, and I really like Joseph, but the Bible doesn't tell us about any of their sin. We know they sinned because they were humans. But God pulls back the curtain and He shows us David's sin. And you know what that means? That means David's relatable. Don't throw stones at David. Because we're all just as, as, as sinful inside our hearts. You, you see David as a child defined by Goliath. Then you see David as an adult defined by Bathsheba. But there's very little talked about about David post-Bathsheba. We know about Amnon, right? We know about Absalom and Tamar. We know about all that. We know about the pain he had to endure. But you read Psalm chapter 2 where David's fleeing from Absalom. And what do you find? You find a man who is basking in the mercy of God. Just just basking in it. He said in Psalm 2, I'm going to lay, lay me down and go to sleep. I'm going to lay me down and go to sleep. You know why? Because God's mercy in his errors and transgressions had so purged his heart that he had become a man of extreme faith. And even while he was enduring the consequences of his sin, he had God's mercy poured all over him to give him peace of heart and soundness of mind to stay the course and love his God. You know why? Because I believe in the latter days of David's life, he reached a point where he was the greatest in his faith he had ever been. You may be here tonight and you may think, boy, I have made some big mistakes in my life. And I am having to deal with those consequences still. And I can tell you that, I listen, if you make mistakes, there's going to be consequences. There's no way around that. And that, that may be, even be God's mercy that will hurt you. And there will be some lingering effects of that for the rest of your life. But can I tell you this? The other side of God's mercy is that He will give you a serenity and a peace in your heart that you can live with and have for the rest of your life. It will purge you like a fire. It will make you strong. The only way you don't get protected, proved, and purified is if when God slaps you with His mercy, you turn and run the other direction and you get bitter at God. Christian, don't do that. Don't do that. What if Lot had pulled away from the angel and said, I'm not going anywhere. What if Lot had gotten out of town and looked over his shoulder the way his wife did? What if Lot had said, I don't want your mercy? Boy, he would have had to pay a heavy price for that. When God is pouring down His mercy on you, can you stop and say, God, I don't know why I'm going through this in my life right now, but is it your mercy that's trying to hurt me to keep me from a greater hurt? A sermon like the one tonight has been left vague on purpose. Because I can't spell out all of the different situations that all of you are going through. But I hope the Spirit of God has worked in your heart tonight and said to you, yep, that's my mercy. And yes, it hurts. But I'm hurting you to protect you from a greater hurt, to get your attention. Well, if God's moving in your heart in that way tonight, why don't you take a few minutes during the invitation and thank God. Thank Him for His mercy. Lord, thank You for tonight, for uh, the Bible. So many wonderful stories And Lord, some stories that are painful to read. But God, we know that you're a God of great mercy. Lord, that mercy comes in different forms. Lord, may we not be like that stubborn little sheep who constantly runs away from the flock and has to be punished. May we follow the shepherd. 
may we be submissive in our spirits. Help us, Lord, to confess and forsake our stubbornness. Lord, when we don't do that and your mercy has to hurt us, may we recognize it for what it is. And Lord, say like Lot said, your mercy has been magnified in my life. God, move in our hearts tonight and help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.